We're going to continue our journey in the book of Hebrews, and we are once again in chapter 2. I don't often have a title, but I can tell you that the title of this message is actually a question, and it comes directly from the passage of Scripture we'll read this morning, and I think it's a profound question that seems more important to answer correctly now than ever. The question is very simply, what is man? And it's asking the question about mankind, humanity, our role, our responsibility, our future, our destiny. A father was once asked what having children taught him about mankind. And I liked his answer. He said... Uh, children have taught me the value of human life because you couldn't give me all the money in the world for one of my children. And I wouldn't give you half the money in my bank account for one of yours. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is the perfect predicament of humanity. In one sense, if we look at them correctly with the right friendship or family relation or likability, humanity is clearly glorious. And no doubt, you've probably already experienced this today, all of the other people are sometimes heinous. (laughs) And it can be a frustrating tension. Uh, Throughout this book, we have looked at different categories of God's created order and how he moves and how he speaks. And we've spent a large bulk of our time doing what in Kirk's sermon he called angelology. And it's important for us to understand God's role for angels as messengers to humanity. And today we have to ask the question, what is God's role for humanity itself? And so let's read the text as we consider this. A profound question for your life and our time. This is the question that lies underneath the tension of the direction of our country and our moral ethic and what is worth fighting for and what's worth dying for. What is humanity for? And this is how it comes up. Chapter 2, verse 5. For he, meaning God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So before we get to the question of the hour and dive into the answer given to us by Scripture, we consider the argument that's being made. Why is this question being posed now? And the author is going to continue the train of thought as we look for Jesus to be the object of our worship and praise and only hope we have for any future. And for the, the, the past few sermons, we've looked at him in comparison to angels. And now the author is going to say, now consider the future we're all waiting for. Consider the world that is to come. This is what we're talking about. The, the, the way that God is ushering in 
the restoration of all things, the new heaven, the new earth, the excitement of our praise is not for today only, but that God who sits on the throne is doing something even now for the world to come. That is why we are supposed to be the most hopeful people in the world, that we see a vision of a future given to us by God. And the author says, now, of the promised world to come, when in the survey of scripture, in the tradition of all of your understanding of God interacting with Israel, when did he ever tell angels that they were gonna rule? When did he ever say that the angels, the heavenly hosts, the the majestic beings that are so often looked at as higher than human, but when did he say they would rule? And this is how we get to the importance of understanding God's design for humanity. Now, why is this something that's so important to understand? The supremacy of Christ in the first wave of this argument is the radiance of God's glory. Christ reigns supreme. He is, in fact, God. And yet, someone who may be drifting, as we talked about last week, away from a view of Jesus as the hope and the answer and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, may say, but yeah, but he's also just a man. He's he's also not quite as majestic as the visions of angels that we've heard about. And so now we have to understand God's role for humanity to understand Jesus' role as man. And that's how we get to one of the great Psalms of the Bible. I think if you you study just the, the, the moments of worship in the Bible, there may be no greater than Psalm chapter 8. It is when the psalmist David is going to look out amongst the stars and see the vastness of God's creation and say, who am I? As you look out in the stars on any given night, you may be moved with the same worship that David is when he writes Psalm 8. And in doing a reflection and meditation on the vastness of creation, he pens Psalm 8 and he begins to find man's proper order in Scripture. Verse six, but one testified in a certain place. That's Psalm 8. I'll help the Hebrew writer here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. This is a a important moment of scripture that the author of Hebrews is going to say, yes, in the created order, it appears to us now that man is lower than angels. And of course, it doesn't take much meditation to consider that. If any one of us actually had an interaction with angels, if there was one standing to me right now, I assure you, you'd be more impressed with whatever that angelic being looked like than you would be with me. It's, it's more majestic It's more glorious in the moment. And even as we sing God's praises, there's heavenly hosts that are more intimately close to the presence of God. We are lower in space and dimension than angels. And yet, as David considers that, he says, you have made him a little lower than angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor. There is something that we must do as the people of God in our generation 
to represent God's design for mankind. As we come here this morning and you can relate to seeing glory in maybe someone you love, what you actually believe in with the theology of a creator God who made mankind crowned with glory is that the design for every single one of us is the glory and honor bestowed upon us by God. That is humanity. And that is one of the great ways that you must be a light in the world of darkness that surrounds the church of God now because there is a wrestling match for the dignity of humanity. Let me read you a couple quotes. As people consider the vastness of our world and where we fit in. Here's one from the late cosmologist Carl Sagan. He says this, The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Humanity without a view of the glory and honor bestowed by God is insignificant at best and evil at worst. Careful, a warning to a culture who thinks that there is no God and there is no creator and everything can be explained by science. You are walking towards insignificance and a view of your fellow man of evil. But that's one tension. And there's another tension in the culture that we live in that maybe you have wrestled with. Here's an Ivy League, an Ivy League professor his name was Edward said, and he said, humanism is the only, I would so far as saying, the final resistance we have against the inhumane practices and injustices that disfigure human history. Humanity has been disfigured throughout human history, and the only hope apart from God is humans themselves. Without God, we are insignificant evil, and we are our only hope. And you wonder why a generation that is leaving the presence of God feels hopeless. What is man? Man has been made a little lower than the angels. Man is not a random collision of atoms. Man is not insignificant in the map of the cosmos. Man has been given glory and honor by the creator and the author of Hebrews is always giving us this beautiful biblical survey. And as we've been looking at the Psalms and other passages of scripture to teach us about the prophets, now we consider the very beginning of the story of God with humanity, Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And then he gives man all the responsibilities in the same verse. And Pay attention when the Bible gives a double emphasis because it means it's important. The next verse, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. There is man and there is woman and they are created to reflect the glorious creator and loving, kind, gracious, faithful, long-suffering God who breathed life into them. That is who man and woman are. 
as we were praying for man and woman, husband and wife, even today, I loved the prayer that our brother Al prayed. He said, God, may they view and treat one another as one made in the image of God. You want to have a healthy marriage? You want to be revived in the respect and the love and the care that you have for one another? Realize that God's fingerprint is on the other person. You want to honor your children and raise them as children who have more purpose than insignificance and future evil? Look at the glory and honor God that God, that God has placed on them. This is the Mago Day that belongs to the people of God, the image of God. We, this month, remembered a man who made great progress for our country in the way that we show each other respect and dignity. His name was Martin Luther King Jr. And if you want to know the bedrock, the foundation of everything he stood on to fight for the equality of human, this is what he'll tell you. The Imago Dei gives every person inherent worth, no matter their race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. Because you are an image bearer, we stand on the absolute truth that murder is wrong, that slavery is wrong and is always wrong, no matter how many people can come around to make might right. We stand on the reality that human bodies are to be precious and sacred and fall into the design of God that sex work is wrong. Abuse is wrong. Because we are people who have been given honor and glory by God. And it also tells us that loving your neighbor as yourself is in fact righteous. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Weight of Glory. If you haven't read it, it is a book that simply stated, helps us understand the glory that God gives each person so that we would know how to love and care for everyone. And here's what he says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible glory. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Here's the beauty of the morning. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And I have the joy of as I say that and believe that with all my heart to look out and see every single person that God has brought into this sanctuary as a gift to this place because none of you are insignificant. The psalmist goes on to say that you have set him over the works of your hands. Not only do we have honor and glory in the way that we reflect God's beautiful personhood, but he's also given us our existence, the created order, all the foundation of the first six days so that man would have dominion. It says in verse seven again, you have set him over the works of your hands. Then God said, Genesis chapter one. 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion is absolute authority. Lest you drift into a cultural current that tells you that you were made for earth, not earth for you lest you fall into one of the oldest temptations of humankind, which is to worship the creation rather than the creator. Man and woman were made to rule over the earth and all of the animals. It was all given for our pleasure and our joy and so that we could take part in the created order with authority given to us by God. And that's why there is a sense of awe and worship and a sense of home when you get to the top of the mountain and you look out and you see the earth that God created and you can't help but worship him. You are in a a small way looking back with a reflection that goes back to the garden that says, this is yours. The beauty of creation points you to the one who gave it to you. That's why we, in all that we should be doing, we we love the animal kingdom. It's fun to take my children to the zoo and let them see all of these animals that were created for our joy. And it's also why some of us need to put the order back into the proper order that you were created to rule over your dog, not your dog over you. And then he says to look at this psalm, making the argument of mankind's role for God's plan for the universe so that we could understand Jesus' role as man. Verse eight, he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. There is not a corner of this earth. There is not a species in the animal kingdom or a fish in the sea that we are under in the order of creation. God's design for man was to be the crowning jewel of creation. And we have to view this entire thing with two lenses. Because in some ways, this is, I hope, reviving your heart and restoring your heart for God's incredible love for mankind. Who are you that God cares about you? Not just enough to give you a warm feeling during a song sung to him, but enough to give you dominion in the created order. God loves man and woman. And yet we have to keep reading. Because there's a great argument to be made, and the the, the author of Hebrews is going to respond to it. And some of you may be on the outside of the kingdom of God looking in and saying, it doesn't appear as though what you're preaching is actually reality. It it doesn't appear to, to the outside world as though this beautiful design that we read about in the beginning of God's word 
is actually the world we live in. Everything is subjection to man. Somebody should tell my dog that. (laughs) But it goes way beyond that. Everything. How many of you feel like disease is under your foot right now? How many feel like when you look out in the world we live in and you see a picture of Skid Row and there's tents everywhere and there's people that are completely given over to drugs, people stealing to feed addiction. And when you look out and you see not neighbors loving one another but fighting and you hear about slums and hunger and disease, how many of you think in man, we really got this thing under control. And so the author of Hebrews says in verse eight, for in that he put all things subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not see all things put under him. Now we do not see paradise. Now we do not see a garden, man living in the created order in perfect harmony. This is how G.K. Chesterton makes a reflection of the problem of glory and honor and dignity for mankind. He says, whatever else is or is not true, one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. Instead of having mastery, he's mastered. Instead of ruling, he's enslaved. Instead of being characterized by strength, he's characterized by great weakness. Instead of being characterized by glory, he is characterized by shame. And here's what we can say. Man was given everything, and man has lost it all. And in this, you find the tension of our world that will split us at the seams to say man is insignificant evil and man is the only way out of this. The problem is not that God is off the throne. The problem is that as you continue to read the story of God, you see that very early on, man lost it all. In the garden, you could have any tree You could have fruit from any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And now we live with glory and honor under a curse. Skid Row is a curse. The slum is a curse. Cancer and AIDS and the disease that plagues our world. We are living under a curse. And as we already stated, there are some that look out in the vastness of the cosmos and they see this insignificant evil plague on humanity called humans. And it says it doesn't look like anybody's sending us any help. And so now we take the two lens, your glory and your honor and the pain of living separated from the perfect will of God for us to live with him forever And we get the author of Hebrews pulling us 
all back to the supremacy of Christ. Look what he says. We don't see everything under our feet. But in verse 9 it says, but we do see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. He's taking Psalm chapter 8 and saying this was for man. And man could not fulfill the glory and the honor bestowed upon them by God. So God became a man and he himself went lower than the angels. Don't drift from Jesus because the angels are greater than man. See that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for humanity. Why did he come and make himself lower than his own created glory? The, the angels that he made? For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. The glory and honor that was lost. The glory and honor that we, we have to preach about and we have to be a light in the world because we, it's, it's not obvious anymore. So God sent his own son into the world to be made lower than the angels. And in doing so, he suffered the death of the curse. And so we live, no doubt, in a world where people will listen to the promise of God's good plan for humanity and say, well, what about all of this pain and suffering? How could a loving God allow skid row and slums. And we say, we don't see all of the ways that God is putting things back into order, but we do see Jesus. The loving God emptied himself. The loving God went lower than the angels. He went lower than all of us born in a manger took on human flesh and became bondservant of humanity, obedient unto death. And so now in Jesus, we see the curse has been lifted. Look what he goes on to say. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone that he might taste the curse for everyone. That he might take on the final enemy, which is not disease, it's not cancer, it's not AIDS. It's not poverty, it's not hunger. These things are previews of the final enemy. The final enemy is death, and it appears as though death is reigning. Look what it says in Romans chapter 5. For if by the one, Adam, the beginning of humanity starts to unravel in one man's offense, and through his offense, the curse leads to death, and death reigned through the one. But much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life with the one. Jesus Christ. 
This is God's plan for humanity. Humanity was given everything. Humanity has lost everything. And there is one savior of the world who came a little lower than angels to defeat the enemy that reigns right now. And in him, we see the broken curse. That in Christ, all who believe are made righteous so that we can reign in life. That he comes and takes the glory of God, the image-bearing nature that you were supposed to have, and he breathes new life into you by the power of his spirit. This is the future of humanity. The world that is to come is the world where God has sent his son into the world to break the reign of death, to usher in the reign of life and call many sons to glory. So what do we do with a message like this? Well, there's some practical things. How do you answer the question? What is mankind? Do you have a vision for the world that God created that bestows honor and glory and hope for every single person? that you run across. And how about the other side of the lens? When we look out and we see the curse of this world, are our eyes fixed on what we can see? The salvation of the world is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's my encouragement to you. Believe this. Know this. God is mindful of you. If you ever doubted where you fit in this story of humanity or the story of the world, the little world that you live in, know this. God has created you. There are no ordinary people. Every one of you special and unique fingerprints of God with glory and honor, and he is mindful of you. What are you? You are someone that God would become lower than the angels to save and die and give newness of life to. And of course, there's a great possibility that some of you needed to hear this message maybe for the first time. The future of humanity is the kingdom of God. There will be a kingdom of God where God will dwell with his people and his people will dwell with him and Jesus will be on the throne and all who believe and have received the gift of his spirit to be born again will live with him forever. Join us. There is no other hope. There is no other message. The kingdom of God is the future. So we praise Jesus now. We look to him. And we're now going to remember that he tasted death for everyone so that we might have life as we take communion.